The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, his life was filled with celebrity and chaos. Throughout it all, he wrote, generating some of the finest poetry of his or any other generation. But what did Byron think? What happened when this great creator of poetic persona dropped his guard, wrote to an intimate, shared his thoughts with a single person rather than the masses? For that, we set aside the poetry and turned to the letters. Andrew Stauffer has chosen ten such letters from the catalog of thousands, and he's based a book on them. We talked to Andrew Stauffer about the life of Lord Byron, as captured in ten letters, today, on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson, etc., I don't mind using the etc. today, but first of all, because you've already heard the rest, host of the show and all that, but also because it's one of my favorite moments in Byron's poetry, and it was introduced to me by a professor at the University of Chicago. I went to his office hours and said, I'm interested in writing my paper on the Romantic Poets and their Invocations of the Muse. And he said, well, the, the guy you... The first thing you must do, you got to make sure you take a look at Byron. Hail, muse, etc. He wrote in one of his poems, it was a whole new world for me. Byron. Suddenly I saw him as kind of the David Letterman to Wordsworth's Johnny Carson. In the same game, but also tearing it apart at the same time. Whittier. Knowing subversive, winking, his arm around us like an old friend. We get it, don't we? Hail, muse, etc. We see what others might be missing. This is familiar to us. Something we can take apart. I've never lost the feeling that as much as I revere Blake and Wordsworth and Coleridge and Shelley and Keats, when it comes to Byron, there's something a little more modern than the others. He's the one who almost seems like he could live right here and right now. The others live on on some Olympus, separated from me by centuries and altitude. They're up there <laughs> in the ethereal air. Byron could live next door. That's how he comes across in his poetry anyway. So I suppose his house would be a little too nice for my neighborhood. But anyway... Setting that aside, that's how he comes across in his poetry. But much of that hail muse, etc., that voice, much of that was a persona constructed by a poet aware of his audience. What about his private audiences? Still might be a persona, of course, writing letters or these days emails or other online communications and, and commentary. We put on a persona for that sometimes, but hopefully when we see a letter that one is writing to another, hopefully that's a little, it's closer to everyday life, closer to the bone of experience. Hopefully we see something a little closer to the real person, a person who might shower affection on someone else or beg for forgiveness or rail against one's enemies, or advise one's associates. 
So today we're going to have a My Last Book with Jonathan Van Bell, our throw at work expert. But first, the letter writing Byron with Andrew Stauffer. Okay, joining me now is Andrew Stauffer, a professor and the chair of the Department of English at the University of Virginia. He's the author of several works, including Book Traces, 19th Century Readers and the Future of the Library, and Anger, Revolution, and Romanticism. And he's also the editor of works by Byron, Robert Browning, and H. Ryder Haggard. He's here today to discuss his new book, Byron, A Life in Ten Letters. Andrew Stauffer, welcome to the History of Literature. Thanks very much for having me. So let's just start with the book, A Life in Ten Letters. What is the book setting out to do? Well, if I wanted to write a biography that would come out in time for the 200th anniversary of Byron's death, 2024. Mm. And so partly was motivated by that, by the desire for a fresh look at the life, a kind of reassessment of his legacy 200 years on. But also, I've always been just a huge fan of Byron as a letter writer, but it's hard to know where to start. You know, there's so many. He's 3,000 letters survive, and, you know, they're all variously wonderful. But I figured, wouldn't it be interesting to take 10 of the best ones, representative ones, from across his life, use those as the introduction to each chapter in full, and let readers read those letters, and then have me unfold them as part of a kind of sequential narrative of life. Okay, so let's start with the letters themselves and the person who's writing them. What are we getting from the letters that we might not get if you had chosen, let's say, 10 poems by Byron? Yeah, I mean, you know, letters are interesting because they're written to different correspondents for different purposes and at different times of, of someone's life. Mm-hmm. Um, you can imagine your own sort of life in 10 emails. Mm-hmm. It might be 10 different jacks that emerge depending on who you're writing to same as myself so it partly gives us a chance to see how he performed or you know i guess performs his personality for different correspondents at different times there's a sense that the letters on the one hand are private and personal but they also are playing a role depending on who he's writing to so that's that mixture of performance and sincerity that you get when you're reading someone else's mail and there is that sense of intimacy, too, that as if we've opened a letter from Byron himself and get to read over his shoulder or over the recipient's shoulder. And then you arrange them chronologically and also include some context for the letters. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. Each It begins when he's just a teenager. His first letter, he's at Cambridge, Trinity College, Cambridge, and writing to a friend uh, back home. And it ends close to his death uh, at age 36 in Greece. And so they go chronologically. Each chapter begins with the letter in full. And then then comes the chapter where I basically tell the story of how did he get to this point where he wrote the letter? Where was he when he wrote it? Who was he writing to? What's the emotional, social, political context in, into which that letter arrived? Literary context, all of that, and tells the story of the life that way, using the letter as the kind of anchor for the chapter. So you you seem like you would have had two things running in parallel, I guess. One would be kind of, a, as you're selecting these letters, one would be a desire to just find the best letters, the most interesting or the most revealing or the most intimate and, and so on. On the other hand, you also probably have in mind some 
key moments from his biography, and you're hoping to shed some light on that. I guess because his life was pretty compressed, maybe it wasn't as difficult as I'm making it out. But how did you go about <laughs> selecting them? And did you feel like you were hitting, you know, 10 different key moments or is there overlap or how did that come about? Yeah, it's a really good question. It goes to the heart of the project. I um, I knew I wanted to have letters that span the, you know, as much of his life as I could. So although he has a lot of wonderful letters from kind of the center of his life when he's in Italy, some of his most famous ones, I couldn't do all the letters there. I wanted to get different locations because he moved around a lot, different mm-hmm. correspondence because he wrote to a lot of different people in different registers. And as you say, I had to kind of cover key episodes of his life. So there has to be a letter about his failed marriage. There has to be a letter about his uh, journey to Greece. There has to be a letter about his time in Cambridge, et cetera, his years of fame in London. So pretty much you had, it was interesting to play within those constraints in choosing the letters. On the one hand, as you say, it would be great to just choose the 10 quote unquote best letters but they, they wouldn't do the work that the biography needed. So I actually swapped a bunch in and out. It took me a while to arrive on the final 10 because as I got to a section, I realized I needed a letter to do a certain amount of work for the life story. Mm, and so mm-hmm. I had to, you know, I had to move things around to make it all work out. But I'm, I'm pretty happy with the 10 that I ended up with. Right. Well, that it almost seems like you're you're giving uh, your readers kind of two books in one. They get to read 10 great letters, but also the way that you've organized them and selected them and the context you present. It's like reading a biography in a sense, too. Oh, yeah, for sure. In fact, it's, and I, I cheat terribly because I quote many, many other letters in oh, the right. course of the chapter, right? <laughs> so the, it begins with the letter in full. But it's really a life, you know, it's a full life. And I quote many sources, many of Byron's other letters, sometimes in in large patches. I quote a lot of the poetry. And so it's it's not only in the 10 letters that we get Byron's words. In fact, I tried to really allow him to speak as much as possible throughout the biography. So my hope is that readers will come away from it eager to read more uh, of Byron, having been exposed to a good uh, range of his of his letters and a smattering of his poetry, an introduction to his poetry. And um, and yeah, that was the goal. Right. Okay, so what? who is the Byron that you see emerging from these letters? What type of person or personality does he have? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, it's often said about Byron that he's such a mobile character, a kind of chameleon. And I think in a certain way, the format of this project brings that out, that you see a lot of different sides of him both, you know, the kind of libertine rake or the sensitive poet, the, the political, politically engaged kind of freedom fighter, um, you know, uh, the, the worried father, the heartbroken ex-husband. I mean, it, it's a lot of different characters that come out. And so mobility or that kind of chameleon-like personality is, is, is always present in Byron. It seems to be in some ways really amplified by this way of looking at him, he, he you know, there's, there, it depends on way, what you see him doing. He can be very generous. He can be funny and silly. He can also be very dark and melancholy, almost uh, abusive. He can be selfish. So it's, he, he's a hard one to get a hold of. But I think that's what keeps people coming back to the biographies of Byron is that no one biographer or one view really ever gets him. And he said that in his own time. He's like, I, 
He's like, I flatter myself that I'll have more than one biographer after I'm gone and they will all get it differently and they'll all get it wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he sort of saw that coming and um, partly because of his multiple modes of self-presentation, he's really a kind of method actor in his social relations, it seems. And yet he has this sincere, what passionate soul or, or personality too, that, that drive that's driving him almost maniacally in certain ways. It's not all superficial, but it is deeply changeable. Right. Does he seem like he's in control of that? I mean, sometimes you read letters where the person seems like they're completely confident and aware of how they're presenting themselves, and they're almost like uh, putting on a kind of performance. And other times you feel like the person is so beset by troubles that they're writing uh, from a position of of desperation or vulnerability. And if they're funny one day and melancholy the next, it's not because they're choosing to do that, but just because life is kind of pulling them in different directions. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I tried to choose letters that show those different sides of him. So you have letters that he's writing, say, back to his publisher, John Murray, who who would read the letters aloud to a kind of company of men in the drawing room. And Byron knew he was kind of writing a rhetorical performance. And so those those letters very much have a kind of smoking room or locker room Mm. feel to them where he Mm -hmm. knows he's telling stories of his Venetian love affairs and things to to what he imagines will be a room full of men. But then I've included one letter to uh, his wife after their separation where he is sort of saying, what went wrong? Please come back to me. Uh, I didn't mean to hurt you. And then another one to his Italian, long-term Italian mistress, uh, Teresa Guiccioli, where he's sort of saying, look, you have to go back to your husband and I need to leave. I love you too much to continue with this affair, et cetera. So those kind of, now you might say those two also are performances. He is trying to Mm, get mm -hmm. something out of these women. He's trying to, you know, adjust a relationship that he's not happy with, but they have the feel of a more kind of naked emotion than the kind of witty, playful letters that he will often write back to his male friends where he's telling stories. You know, he spent a lot of time abroad and so much of his correspondence is sent back to England informing English friends, you know, what he's been doing. And that they, those do have more performance quality to them. Now, were you editing these letters as well? I'm wondering if there's, you know, sometimes, especially uh, when people are traveling around, you get a lot of detail about uh, you know, here's here's where I'm going to be, or here's the sort of the mechanics of life. Uh, were there boring parts that you had to excise, or or is he pretty efficient in his letter writing? You know, he's pretty efficient. I I made it a rule for myself that I would not edit the letter, the ten letters, the ten that I chose have to be presented in full, and I actually mm-hmm. went back to all the original manuscripts of the letters uh, that exist, and I re-edited them. So I, you know retranscribed them and in some cases restored like crossed out passages that are kind of revealing uh, things that that don't appear in the standard printed editions. If you look at the actual letter, you can learn things about what what used to be there. So I did edit them in that way, but I didn't uh, excise anything. He's pretty aware of himself as a letter writer. He try he rarely, I think, bores his reader. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, the first, the second letter is a letter he writes home uh, to a, a friend about his travels in the Ottoman Empire and Turkey and Greece. And he's, you know, he's in his early 20s. And it does talk about all the places he's been and where he's going. But it's it's very entertaining the way he talks about it. It's not 
dry or dusty. He's he's quite sort of lively and full of illusion and, and interesting stories as he goes through that. And of course, at that time, he was writing his first great work, Child Harold's Pilgrimage, which itself is a kind of travel narrative of that same trip. And so he's he's becoming really good at talking about travel, looking at landscapes, feeling their history, experiencing his own emotions. And he becomes a model for travel writing, you know, and for traveling generally. After Byron, um, everyone wants to travel in that Byronic mode where you really feel the, the spirit of the place as you as you make your tour. Right. So you could probably see him working out stories or or events that are occurring in his life, and you can kind of track those to some of the poetry that he was writing. But does he talk about his poetry explicitly in any of the letters? He does. In many of his letters, he does. Not as explicitly in the 10 that I chose. I was kind of looking back over them for that. He does say, you know, um, I'm enclosing the manuscript for this. So, you know, some mm -hmm. of their business letters where he's talking to his publisher about things. But I think it's more that you can see as you said, the kind of sensibility and the, sometimes the turns of wit, the turns of phrase, the turns of thought that will end up in the poetry being tried out in the letters or being recast in the letters. And so you get a sense of him as how, how he turns experience into language. You can see that happening. For example, in that one where he's traveling abroad, he's just swum the Hellespont, you know, this famous swim in Turkey, about four miles in open water. And he writes about it in that letter home. And then he goes and writes a lyric poem about it afterwards. And they have the same kind of self-ironizing and yet proud um, mm. attitude that you can see in both the letter and the poem. Mm -hmm. I guess there are two different kinds of ways that a poet might write about their poetry. And one would be sort of a Keatsian, let me theorize what poetry is about and what I'm trying to do and what I'm wrestling with and what's what I consider to be, you know, I'll sort of put down my my theories of poetry into this letter. And another might be just the, here's how much I made, or here's how many lines I wrote, and here's my next publication is coming out in a month, and, you know, that kind of thing, sort of the mechanics of it. Do we see either yeah. of those that Byron is doing, or, and and do we see him avoiding either of those? You know, yeah, he's very different than Keats. And partly, I think it has to do with this kind of aristocratic position and mm -hmm. his sense of poetry as, you know, he says things like, I, poetry is you know, just something I do. You know, for a long time, he kind of says, oh, well, I'm, I'm going to do something more important than just, you know, write words. I, he sees, you know, he thinks he might have a grander, more public destiny. You know, he gives speeches in the House of Lords. He's thinking maybe, you know, I will join the, the, the nationalist movements in Italy or possibly South America or possibly Greece. And so I think he, for a long time, resists the identification of himself as a poet with a capital P. Um, mm. And he kind of casts casts aspersions on um, poets who he says are sort of all poet or, you know, they're with their inky fingers and they're spending too much time thinking about literature. So there's a kind of insouciance or a kind of studied uh, sense that poetry is just one of the things he does for a long period in his life. And I think he doesn't he doesn't he tries not to take it too seriously, at least in his letters, even as, of course, he's working very hard and spending many hours of his day, you know, producing uh, poetry, yeah, he, right. he's not as much a theorizer. He doesn't have like, you know, the Keatsian uh, sort of statements about the, you know, the imagination or Wordsworth's mm -hmm. preface to lyrical ballads. Byron really doesn't have 
these kinds of long prose manifestos about the imagination or poetry. He, there are moments in his letters where he does, and in his journals where he does take those topics on, but it's not his main thing. It mostly is, you have to read the poetry itself. Yeah, that's so interesting because that kind of fits the personality that comes across in the poetry. That he seems like he's trying to have a sort of sprezzatura or a, a feeling that this was just something dashed off at the end of his pen, even though clearly it would be something that you would have to work pretty hard to get that effect. But he wanted it to look like he didn't care too much. That's right. That's an important part of it. And it, and in fact, he was very rapid. Um, it's hard to exactly know because we can't, you know, can't exact see into his study, but he tells people, oh, you know, it's clear he wrote quickly for much of, much of his poetry was written quickly. And he would write, you know, I, I wrote this coming home from balls at two in the morning, uh, you know, standing on one foot. So he sort of acts casual about the composition of much of his verse that it was just sort of tossed off or, as you say, done with panache or spezzatura. Um, it's not the full story, but it is part both of his self-mythologizing, but I think part of his practice. I think there was a kind of rapidity of composition that, you know, for many years he was actually taken to task for in, you know, in the early 20th century up until mid-century, really. And people many critics would be like, Byron's not a very great poet. He's mm. not as careful as a Shelley or a Keats. He's a little, he's too casual with his use of grammar, his use of meter. And you just have to admire him for the force and speed and mobility of his thought. But he's, he's not a philosopher and he's not a great prosodist. Um, I think those attitudes have been adjusted in you know recent generations, but it is part of the Byronic reputation is that he's not, the careful lapidary craftsman of a of a Keats or a Shelley, but he's kind of all about force and speed. Mm. And it kind of makes it more fun. I mean, he also doesn't seem like he's someone who's agonizing over his project, but that he's he's in on it with the reader as we're going on an adventure together. Yes, there's an improvisatory quality that he cultivates in the poetry, that, and that I think comes through in the reading experience as if you're sort of on a collaborative journey together. Mm. Okay, let's take a quick break and then come back with more from Andrew Stoffer. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts.
Okay, we're back. Andrew, I was wondering if you might read from one of the letters to give us a sense of this Byronic voice. Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking which would be the the best one to read. As I say, there's so many different Byrons that come out of this. I think I'll maybe I'll try this one, uh, which is from Chapter 6, about his memories of Venice and particularly his love affair with Margarita Cogni, who was a woman he met in Venice and became one of his primary lovers. And she was passionate, funny, beautiful, young, and very tempestuous. And and so uh, Byron is telling, this is one of those letters he writes home to John Murray, which he kind of knew would probably be read aloud. And it's a story of that relationship. And he's re-mentioning one night when, well, the following thing happened. Uh, This is Byron. In the autumn one day, going to the Lido with my gondoliers, we were overtaken by a heavy squall and the gondola put in peril, hats blown away, boat filling, oar lost, tumbling sea, thunder, rain and torrents, night coming, and wind increasing. On our return, after a tight struggle, I found her on the open steps of the Mossamigo Palace on the Grand Canal, with her great black eyes flashing through her tears and the long dark hair which was streaming drenched with rain over her brows and breast. She was perfectly exposed to the storm. And the wind blowing her hair and dress about her tall, thin figure, and the lightning flashing round her, and the waves rolling at her feet made her look like Medea alighted from her chariot, or the sibyl of the tempest that was rolling around her, the only living thing within hail at that moment except ourselves. On seeing me safe, she did not wait to greet me as might be expected, but calling out to me, ah, dog of the virgin, is this a time to go to the Lido? Ran into the house and solaced herself with scolding the boatman for not foreseeing the temporale, the tempest. I was told by the servants that she had only been prevented from coming in a boat to look after me by the refusal of all the gondoliers of the canal to put out into the harbor at such a moment, and that then she sat down on the steps in the thickest of the squall and would neither removed or be comforted. Her joy at seeing me again was moderately mixed with ferocity and gave me the idea of a tigress over her recovered cubs. Mm. So that's Byron telling that story. And it, you can sort of see how he might have been a good novelist or a short story writer. He's really good at creating that scene. Yeah. And he's doing it, uh, you know, for, for his reader. Right. Or a filmmaker. <laughs> I felt like it was cinematic. Very cinematic. Yeah, exactly. But it, that one is you know, sort of in some ways less personal than some of the other letters where he's talking more directly to his correspondent. That one really is a, a performance or a little set piece. Is he, does he ever allow himself to be vulnerable? Do you see him, uh, I guess, sad or lonely or anxious or anything like that? Yeah, the, uh, chapter four, the letter uh, to, his, to his wife, who has left him after a, a, only a few weeks after giving birth to their daughter, uh, Ada, and um, in the midst of uh, sort of episodes of cruelty and drunkenness on his part, and maybe kind of temporary insanity, he writes to her February 8th, 1816. All I can say seems useless, and all I could say might be no less unavailing. Yet I cling to the wreck of my hopes before they sink forever. Were you then never happy with me? Did you never at any time or times express yourself so? Have no marks of affection of the warmest and most reciprocal attachment passed between us? Do not mistake me. I have not, not denied my state of mind, but you know its causes. And were those deviations from calmness never followed by acknowledgement and repentance? So, and Leto goes on like that. It's a little further on. Will you see me when and where you please, in whose presence you please? The interview shall pledge you to nothing. 
I will do nothing to agitate you. It is torture to correspond thus, and there are things to be settled and said which cannot be written. And so that really sort of impassioned and painful letter comes soon after she has essentially left him and never to return. He will never see her again or his daughter, but he's still hoping that she will come back to him. And the letter is an attempt to kind of make that happen. It's a slightly manipulative letter, sort of sort of cross-examining her. Weren't we happy together? Didn't I always say I was sorry after I hurt you, et cetera, et cetera, a kind of baffled abuser letter, but a very naked one, as opposed to the performances for, for Murray and the lads. Wow. You know, the, the two excerpts that we've now heard seem like the reason why we love Byron, because if you had 10 letters like the first one you read, we might think, oh, okay, here's a, an interesting Casanova. We'll follow his adventures around. But you'd get a little bit tired of it if, if, it was, if that was the only side to the man that you saw. And the one that you read second, uh, you know, that gives us a sort of the sensitive poet and, the, you know, the deep soul and all of that, which is also interesting. But I think if you had 10 letters like that, you'd probably feel a little bit like, well, are you are you doing anything? You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes, exactly. That's that's the thing about my, like the thing about this biography, I think, is if you don't like uh, that letter, read the next one. It's yeah. going to be completely different. <laughs> the idea you know, you're not going to get more of the same. And partly it's his mood swings. He's he's been you know posthumously diagnosed as possibly bipolar or manic depressive. Kate Redfield Jameson's book, Touched by Fire, kind of makes that case. And it, you know, as you read the letters, you realize that he's, whether or not that is a fair diagnosis, he certainly swings from uh, low lows to high highs. And the letters catch him in all different places on that spectrum. And so you see very different modes, moods, personalities. And of course, he's also, um, in certain ways, a manipulative, witty, charming person. And so the letters are doing the work of negotiation in many cases, whether it's poetical with his publisher, romantic with a lover, financial with his banker. He's a smart person and he's a witty person and he's really good at using language to get across ideas in a certain way to get what he wants. Okay, now I'm guessing that to read uh, or to check out all of the letters so you could make your selection, you probably had that available at the library at the University of Virginia, or maybe they're even online at this point. But where did you have to go to consult the 10 original manuscripts? Yeah, that's a good question. Yes, the letters themselves have been almost all published in Leslie Marchand's 11-volume edition that uh, is great. And so there's an easy access to the printed versions. But for these 10, I wanted to make a special uh, pilgrimage to each one and really see it. And as I said, observe things that you can't tell from that edited transcription. So even just the way the ink slants across the page when mm. he's writing, um, you know, uh, in, a, in a hurry, he has one great letter with a bunch of postscript scraps that he's kind of adding as he's getting more interested. <laughs> there's there's changing handwriting. The letters themselves have these wax seals or damaged edges that you can see that they you know, sort of. So uh, three of them are in the National Library of Scotland. The John Murray Collection, which mm, is Byron's mm -hmm. publisher, went there. And that, that's the greatest place for Byron manuscript uh, research. But then there's, let's see, there's one at Cambridge where Byron went to Trinity College at the Wren Library. There's one or two at the British Library. I looked at a number of letters in the Horsheimer collection at the New York Public Library. So they are in some ways 
scattered. There's a couple, there's at least one letter that no longer exists, um, but we only have a printed version of it. So it's a complex paper trail that Byron left behind. Partly, luckily, he was a celebrity and famous in his own time, and so people tended to save his letters. And so, right. like I say, we have 3,000 that survived, but he probably wrote, you know, more than twice that. It's just that, you know, we, we only have the three, 3,000. It's still an amazing number of letters for someone who only lived to be 36 years old. So we're really lucky that, that, you know, that people preserved and saved the traces of his legacy and that, and that he, soon after his death, lots of biographies started coming out. In fact, the first one by Thomas More, his friend really privileged the letters. It, and it, it's the first version of what I've done in that the letters appear in full, many more than 10 because Moore had access to them and he was publishing them for the first time and then inter interwoven with, you know, the, the in-between material of his life. Right. I guess on the one hand, his celebrity made it, uh, you know, the, more likely that a lot of these would survive, but it, it maybe also made it more likely that they would be so scattered around the world because it would be every, every great collection would want to have at least a, a letter or two by Byron, or, you know, it, it would be harder to gather them than it would be for some uh, lonely but passionate librarian somewhere in the middle of nowhere who <laughs> discovers a, yeah. uh, an interest in an author that everyone else has sort of half forgotten about. That's right. Byron has, has commanded, you know, he's been interesting to collectors and souvenir hunters from the very beginning, even during his own lifetime, of course. So, um, you know, and now when a Byron letter comes up on the market, it will be, you know, twenty thousand dollars, forty thousand dollars, you know, just for one letter. They're very they're very rare that they that they come on the market. But when they do, they're they're instantly uh, rocketed up in price because um, that's just he has that that kind of glamour and that and that cachet. So um, we're lucky to have all the ones we have. But as you say, they are scattered. They're not completely scattered, but they are spread across many, many institutions. All right. So the last thing I wanted to ask you about is, were there any surprises as you were going through these letters? But I kind of want to ask this in three parts. So my okay. first question is, do we see anything in the letters that would have surprised Byron's contemporaries? Yeah, I think the letters to Teresa. So Countess Teresa Guiccioli is his long-term Italian mistress. She's married to an uh, Italian count. She's um, 19 when he meets her and the count her husband is 57 so and he's in his early 30s and so they begin this passionate affair that really is the last great love of byron's life the last attachment as he calls it or his last love and he writes to her in italian uh, and the letters are very sentimental and loving and emotional and and romantic in that kind of old-fashioned sense Partly that's the way Teresa was and the way she wrote to him. And so he kind of takes on that. But it doesn't sort well with our view of Byron as this kind of dark, brooding seducer, yeah. cynical, world-weary, jaded nobleman. They're very naked kinds of letters and very sentimental ones. And I think, you know, that because they were written in Italian, it took a while for them to kind of make their way into the English-speaking audience reception of Byron and you know really didn't that didn't happen till lo longer after his death so I think that would have surprised his contemporaries in a way and in fact his friends were worried about him his English friends and hearing about this relationship and sort of seeing what was going on his friend John Cam Hobhouse was like you know don't 
get involved with this woman. It's changing you. You should come back to London, et cetera, et cetera. There was a kind of Italianization of Byron that the, that his English friends were were worried about, and Teresa was a big part of that. Mm. Well, my second question was going to be if there's anything that would surprise readers today, but you've already sort of answered it because I think I would be surprised to see him in those letters to Teresa. But is there anything else that you think would surprise readers today? Well, I mean, just the range of the letters. I think we tend to have a cartoon version of Byron in our heads. And that was true in his own time as well. People would think he was going to be the dark brooding seducer of, of his poetry. And in fact, he's Silly, funny, um, confused, um, you know, insecure sometimes. You know, he, he has a much more wide-ranging personality than the cartoon versions allow for. And the letters, partly why I love the letters so much, you read, you read the poetry and you're going to get different versions of the Byronic hero, right? In a certain way, that avatar or various projections that he puts out there. But the letters give us a shot at seeing the many sides of this complex figure. And they are all over the map. So I think readers will be surprised at the complexity of his personality and intrigued by it. And, you know, just trying to figure out when he's being sincere, when he's putting on an act, what he's really feeling in the moment, given the wild changes, depending on who he's writing to or where he is in his life. He's, he's a, you know, sort of an enigma. Mm. Okay. Well, my third question is was there anything that surprised you? And I don't know if this would be from the crossouts that you consulted in the original manuscripts or or anything that you just weren't expecting to find. Yeah, that, that crossouts are interesting. I hadn't because that was one thing I didn't know about until I held the letters in my hands. But that you know, I, I had read the the edited editions, um, but it was you know, paying attention to the um, to the letters themselves and seeing this is a very small thing, but um, the watermarks on the paper. You know, when you when you hold paper up to the light, you can sort of see in the old in old handmade paper where it was made and when. Mm. There'll be like mm. kind of a, a date and a place, and you can see in Byron's letters. You can there's a kind of secret history of his stationery. But mm. as you look at the letters, the, no, even though he's writing from the middle of a, a boat in the in the um, in the Hellespont, uh, the let the paper that he's writing on came from England, and the pen that he's writing with is, was also a gift from a friend back in England. And so the the paper and the pen form a kind of material link home to the person he's writing to, even as he's writing you know, from far far distant places. And that kind of that pattern's repeated throughout. But the material aspects of the paper itself, the way it was folded, the way it was torn, what was crossed out, the way the handwriting shifts as he gets older, you know, all of that was new to me because I, you know, I hadn't taken the time to open the letters and, and actually look at them. And that really felt like a revelation. Did you feel like you were getting to know him in a more intimate way or it, it, I mean you had sort of this physical connection that maybe you wouldn't if you were just reading his poems on the pages of a book yes I think that's right I mean the, the, just holding objects that he held um, it, across these moments really brings you closer and, and I, I looked at other not just the letters that I republished of the 10 but I was looking at a lot of Byron manuscripts at the time I just finished co-editing a, a selection of Byron's works for Oxford. Jonathan Sachs and I have a new edition of his selected poems coming out. 
empty time now. And so we looked at a lot of manuscripts there. And so I've really spent the last few years in, in close contact with the paper trail that Byron left behind, learning to read his handwriting, learning to sort of understand how his writing moves across the page and all of that. And so that's been, that's been great. And I think it has brought me closer than just a kind of linguistic absorption of his, of his words would have done. Okay, well, the book is called Byron, A Life in Ten Letters. Andrew Stauffer, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you for having me. Finally today, we turn to Jonathan Van Bell. After he told me all about Henry David Thoreau's relationship with work, I asked him a special question. Okay, we're joined by Jonathan Van Bell, independent scholar and the author of Henry at Work, among other books. Jonathan, this question comes from a listener who asks, what do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. You can either choose one that exists or describe one that has not yet been written. It's an excellent question. It's kind of like a variation on the Desert Island mm, book. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, so I think I'll answer in a way that is more satisfying for me, which is by choosing a book that actually exists instead mm-hmm. of trying to outline one. I would say I would have to, like a main criteria is something brief, just because it, like thinking through this question realistically, I'd like to spend my final days both remembering my life and the lives of those I loved and also living as lucidly as possible in the presence of my loved ones. So I want something that's like a, you know, a little bit brief and on the side. And I think my genre would be poetry. It's impressionistic and poetry. And I want a poetry that doesn't insist on any grand beliefs. It's something that keeps me calm, grateful, even grateful for death if possible. So I, I gave giving that those criteria together. I think the Penguin Book of Haiku. It's a simple, straightforward title. Came out in 2018. Has over a thousand haiku poems, but of course those are short. Translators Adam L. Kern, and I'd want haiku because they evoke the phenomenology of life yes. in a way that doesn't insist on any interpretation. And I would want those little evocations to bring me to certain memories. I'd want the phenomenology of my own memories returning to me. Not lessons per se, but just that richness of the life I've lived and the life of the ones who I love. Just those hints, those little hints of uh, this, that sensuous wisdom. That's beautifully put. My concern is that every time that I read haiku, it makes me want to go outside and live. It makes me yeah. want to appreciate nature and to sort of drink more of it in. And And I would worry that if I was reading it, I would get restless and think, how can I give all of this up? Yeah, no, that's that's a good point. I think what's good about a lot of the haiku is it does do that, but it also, there's an innerness that yeah. is also involved, not just... Like the, right. the longing is also resolved in a way for a lot of these, haiku, the, the natural, the Zen haiku, um, that you don't have to go out, but it's you've been out 
So in this particular book, the Penguin Book of Haiku, it's great because it covers the whole range of haiku. Haiku is often associated with just nature, but haiku was used for eroticism, for humor, for other things of daily life. So this book covers, I think, the whole gamut of uh, human existence, which as we all, we've all had those moments in our life. So I'd want to kind of, I know towards the end of people's lives, they often are in these um, memory palaces. They're thinking about things that happened 80 years ago, people who are no longer with us. And this, the subtlety of haiku and the, the range of topics and the range of ways of coming at a topic, I think you'd want to go both into that memory palace more and you can and evoke things, but also look out, see the sun, you know, to the extent that you're you're able to uh, go outside or sit outside or have some interaction with outside at the very end. I think it would you, just a, the haiku allows you to touch a little bit of that and get so much. I really think in Japanese poetry, there's this minimalism where it's meant to focus on the small, to focus on that, but to see in that the large to see in that the in see in the microcosm the macrocosm right. so you don't need much so when that's the haiku idea you don't need much but you can unfold from that so much and if i have very little time and i'm looking out a window i have very little maybe sensory input i have very little mobility to be able to look at a cloud a random cloud and not need more but see in that enough that would be uh, that would be pretty special. Right, or take a sip of water and enjoy the sensation. And there is a kind of serenity in haiku that's sort of saying, you know, you don't need to travel to the Great Wall of China or you don't need to be on a, a rocket ship you know, journeying to the moon or anything like that. You can be right where you are, right here, right now. And the experience is something you can benefit from and i don't know if enjoy is the right word but it can be a kind of fulfillment of your existence yes even in this small and unassuming way exactly jonathan van bell thank you so much for joining me on the history of literature thank you for having me okay there we go that's going to do it for this episode of the history of literature. I'm so glad you are here today for it. My thanks to Jonathan Van Bell for stopping by. The Penguin Book of Haiku, a marvelous choice. And of course, to Andrew Stauffer, his book on Byron is a must-read for all you fans of romantic poetry and or fans of men who were mad, bad, and dangerous to know. Even just knowing him was dangerous. <laughs> What a, what a phrase. And what a figure. Hmm. Byron. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.